0: I was looking for a good leadership training because I was finding it was really beneficial. I was applying the principles at work and, and also I was dealing with my own post-traumatic stress at that time in 2015. Um, I, you know, I, I won't go down this rabbit hole, but for two years straight, I'd been having nightmares. I couldn't sleep through the night. I was waking up in a cold sweat and you know, night terrors. You know, I was the kind of guy that, you know, Um, you know, my wife had to throw a couple blocks at night because, you know, you start swinging and thrashing or you hear a noise or you think something's happening. Um, it was, I was, I was having terrible, horrible night terrors and nightmares. And I was, I become very hypervigilant and all this stuff that we've been talking about for the last hour or so about shootings and things that happen and violence. And a couple of my friends got shot. And, um, I broke my back. My wife had cancer. My dog died. You know, I had a business that took a crap in 2008. So they were, you know, rebounding from stuff financially from that hit and all this stuff. And I just, all of it, this cumulative trauma, it had caught up to me and I can't point to one specific thing. It was just the whole thing. You know, I don't know what it was, but finally after 20 years, 22 years, it was like, it, it, it caught up to me. And I found this book and, you know, part of the, the, the stuff, the, the, the stuff you learn about extreme ownership is about leading yourself and about, you know, recognizing where your shortfalls are and what, and taking the steps to, for improvement. And so there was things that I wanted to work on and become a better leader and try and be, be a better supervisor. I just wanted to be a good sergeant. And then there was also things of where I could apply this stuff to my personal life, and ha- and and get better. And so I really started getting involved in um, their training and would go to events. And I went to you know a few of their events. And then, um, you know, I started. I, I had had so much success that I reached out to them and I said, "Hey, I just." If you ever need a volunteer, um I know you put on these, these big events, these musters. I'd been to a couple of them as a paid attendee and I said and I know you have some people at help because there's a lot they have hundreds of people. The last one I was at had almost 800 people at it. Um yeah, the first one had 350, which I thought was wow, man, there's 300 people here. Now they're you know pulling in 7 to 900 people. But I was said like hey, if I just want to love to pay it forward. I've got so much from this and If I, if you ever need a volunteer, let me know, I'll be there. And, and that's what I would do. I would just keep in touch with them. And, um, and one time there was a time where they're like, Hey, you know what? We could use some help and we'd love to have you. Uh, And they gave me a shot to be a volunteer on their muster crew. And now I'm, you know, five, five musters in as a, as a volunteer, but I get to, you know, be a small cog in the, in the wheel of helping people have a, a good experience at muster.
1: Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani, and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also gonna have guests who are gonna talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Welcome back everyone. My guest this week is Jeff McGreevy. Jeff served in the Marine Corps for four years right out of high school, deployed during Operation Desert Storm. After getting out of the military, he spent 29 years as a cop and retired as a Sergeant in 2020. Through his own trauma and work experiences, he got involved with Officer Wellness in 2004 as a founding member of his department's trauma support team. He's also been invited to become a member of the California Post's Organizational Wellness Committee. Today, Jeff is a public safety advocate for First Responder Wellness, a company that specializes in helping first responders with addressing mental and behavioral health concerns. Additionally, he also volunteers with Jocko Willinks and Leif Babin's Echelon Front, assisting with their leadership training musters. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please enjoy episode 70. I appreciate you driving down. I know that's had to be quite a drive, but fortunately it's in correspondence to, and we're going to get into this down the road, but it's related to the work you're doing now as a retiree. Before we get into that, where's hometown
0: for you? Oxnard. Born and raised? Uh, Yes. Well, uh, born and raised in, I'm sorry, Long Island, New York, is where I'm originally from. So I lived there until I was in uh, fourth grade. So nine years old, my mom remarried, and uh, he worked for Grumman Aerospace. So he transferred to Point Magoo, which is which is in Oxnard, and then uh, that's how we ended up in Oxnard in 1978. And big family, small family? Two. I got two brothers. So mom, dad, two brothers.
1: From your parents' orig- first marriage or your mom's remarriage, the brothers?
0: A mix. So uh, my brother and my middle brother from, uh, we have the same bio- biological father, my mom remarried. And then, uh, I have a, another brother who's 10 years younger than me that uh, is from the second marriage. And, uh,
1: are you the oldest of the three? Yes. So you kind of led the train.
0: I, I guess I would say that. Yeah. You know, we ended up, you know, the, the dads in our life, uh, didn't really do much for us. So, you know, my, my parents were divorced probably by the time I was in kindergarten, I was living with my grandparents, And uh, there was some domestic violence that happened. My dad um, had a drinking problem and he ended up getting into, um, they were already split up, but he got into uh, a DUI car accident when I was about seven years old and um, hit a tree or a telephone pole and ended up getting um, some partial paralysis and a traumatic brain injury. And, you know, he spent the rest of his life living in a nursing home. Um, So, you know, dad wasn't in in my life early on. My grandfather was. Um, My mom remarried. You know, That marriage only lasted two years. So, you know, uh, that guy, you
1: know. And that was the marriage that brought you guys to California? That's what brought
0: us to California.
1: Yeah. Was your mom originally from
0: New York also? Yeah. Everybody's, you know, they were all from Brooklyn. My grandparents, uh, my mom, they all, uh, they were all born and raised in Brooklyn. And then uh, my grandparents moved, they called it moving out to the country when they went to long Island, but I live, I grew up in, in Suffolk County in, uh, near Huntington station.
1: We, we definitely then share something in common cause my dad grew up in, in Brooklyn. So it's kind of weird to think in a world, in a small world where if their paths ever crossed and right. you know, who knew when your mom came out to California and, and then got divorced, was it not a draw, a draw to go back home to New York?
0: Oh, I wanted to go back. I mean, um, We, my mom wanted to try and make it on her own. So she, she didn't want to go home. She didn't want to go back and and live with her, her parents. She wanted to try and make it on her own. So she stayed out here and, you know, I, I, um, you know, tip my hat to my mom all the time. At one point, my mom worked three jobs. She, she worked at a bank and a credit union on the Navy base. um, CBC credit union. There's a CB base, um, there in Port Wainimi that, uh, there's Point Magoom and, Port Wyneme and she worked at that credit union for 34 years. But, you know, in the, in the eighties, she worked as a teller at the bank and then she was a Tupperware lady. You know, you had that (laughs) side business where you're, you know, trying to make some money with Tupperware and then she had a paper route. So we were out, um, this is back when, you know, he still threw newspapers on the driveway. Um, you know, she had a paper route. And so, I mean, there was, you know, Various times it was she was doing what she you know whatever she had to do to to pay the rent.
1: And when you mentioned your grandparents and being an impact in your life, were they back in New York or yeah, were they here? In everybody,
0: California? everybody was back in New York. So my my grandparents, I when I I wanted to go back home. I always wanted to go back home, and uh, I, in fact, I did for ninth grade. Um, I convinced them to let me go back for a year, and. um, and I went through ninth grade there, and then I fully intended on staying. And I was registered for the next year, and basically my mom made me come home. You know, She she wanted me to be with her.
1: What do you think it was that that kind of was your draw to the East Coast as opposed
0: to here? My family. Um, we re- basically got uprooted from all of our cousins, all of our aunts and uncles, all of this extended family. My grandparents were kind of those cool people that – Uh, my, my grandfather was a world war II veteran. He was in the Marine Corps from, um, 42 to 40, I'm sorry, 41 to 43. And, um, but he never talked about his service. Like, I don't have any cool stories to tell you about what he did because he was one of those people that he, even when I went in the Marine Corps, he still didn't tell me about anything. Uh, the only thing he told me was like, don't volunteer for anything. That was his, (laughs) that was his advice, you know, but, um, my, my grandparents had this cool network of friends that they had grown up with. And all of those people were like my aunt, so-and-so they weren't my biological family, right. but they were, you know, uncle Tony and aunt so-and-so. And they were these like cool people. And my grandparents had a solid life. They had a house and they had jobs. My, my grandfather worked for Briars ice cream. So, you know, when you're a kid and your grandpa <laughs> has a commercial freezer, I mean, I'm talking about like with those lids that lift up like that, like you'd see I'm in an sure ice cream you weren't truck.
1: popular with the kids at Man.
0: all. I mean, and it was always full. So my grandfather <laughs> always had uh, a freezer full of ice cream and, um, you know, they were, uh, they were taking care of us. But we had no family here and we, we lived in Ventura County. We had, you know, a, a couple of cousins that we'd see occasionally that, you know, had migrated to the West Coast. But really everything that I had gr- grown up with got uprooted from that. And then now we're living with this, this guy that I don't even know. Like I had no relationship with this person that, you know, it's like my mom's getting married and we're moving to California. Like I really have no memory. I was nine years old when we moved here, when they got married, I have no memory of ever having any real interaction with this person. So now, you know, you, you're living in the house with this person 24 seven. And then, you know, you know, my mom's trying to say, Hey, could you call him dad sometimes? And you're like, No. Right. You're going through that thing as a kid going, I don't even know this person, you know? Um, but it didn't last long. They were within two years, they were done. And, um, you know, we stayed out here and, um, um, the good thing about staying here is I met my wife. I met my wife when I was in 11th grade and we've been together ever since, since 1986. I think that's uh, really cool. I think
1: that's one side of the story that's really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If I had gone home you know, I, I, I never would have met Andrea and, you know, we have two, my kids are adults. I'm a grandpa. I got a two-year-old and, a, and a, another one coming in a couple months in December. So, um, I mean, we have a great life and, but my wife and I, we, um, you know, we took off together and we just built a life, you know, for ourselves. And uh, so it's pretty neat. You mentioned
1: your grandfather having prior military service, being a Marine. Was that your only influence
0: as far as the military growing up? I would say so. You know, there were a couple of that group of the, all of them had served. One guy was in the Navy. Somebody might've been in the army, but like, you know, I grew up with my grandpa was a Marine and everybody, you know, everybody talked about, you know, my, my grandfather. And he was kind of a stoic person, just a strong guy. He went to work every day. And um, from a really early age, I knew that I wanted to join the military and I was really inspired by my grandfather to join the Marine Corps. And so I have a, a letter at home, uh, that says, thank you for your interest in the United States Marine Corps, but because you're only 14 years old, (laughs) you're going to have to wait. You know, they sent me a sticker. I got a sticker out of it, but I knew from an early age that I, I was always fascinated kind of with the, with the military and I would watch, you know, the old war movies and things like that. But my, my grandfather, he, you know, he was an inspiration to me, even though he didn't talk much about his service. Um, you know, I always, you know, felt, and I still believe Marine Corps is the best, and they were the toughest. It was a hard boot camp, and I felt like, you know, to complete something like that, it would be, you know, a huge, um, you know, success for a young person. I was seventeen when I when I went to boot camp.
1: What about your brothers? Were they driven by the same? My light?
0: my youngest brother. So my uh, not my middle brother, but my my youngest brother. Um, he wanted to follow in some of my footsteps and so you know my brother i think any and he could have been influenced by my grandfather a little bit as well but um but my brother uh when he graduated from high school he joined the marine corps also and he got injured in boot camp and unfortunately you know he he came back home and he uh, with this injury, and wasn't able to to serve any longer, but but uh, he tried, and then he he had an interest later in life in trying to get into law enforcement. It, it didn't work out for him, but uh, there was there was an interest there for sure.
1: You mentioned having an interest going in the the Marine Corps. You knew as a young kid. What what about sports? You know, were you a good student academically? Were you involved in sports?
0: I was good enough to get a, a two so that you could. Play. play football, right? <laughs> that was about it. So I had an interest in, um, in sports, but I never played organized sports because my mom couldn't afford to pay for little league or something like, like that. So, you know, I got to a point early on where I just wouldn't even ask my mom, like, you know, cause I knew that we were scrapping just to, for her to make, I mean, we literally were on welfare for a little while. And, you know, if you've ever uh, you know, people joke about the government cheese, like we had a brick of that government cheese in our refrigerator that, you know, it was, I look back on this thing of where, you know, my mom was, was getting some kind of help from probably from the state to get by. So, um, but when I got into high school, I just, you know, basic football, I wasn't, I'm the no superstar or anything. I was just good enough to make the team and play it. I like to play football. And then I tried out for baseball and, um, I made the team, but I didn't have a 2.0 grade average. So they wouldn't let me play. So that was kind of a bummer. But I just played high school football. And then as I got older and I got in the military, I played on a couple of base teams for baseball. I wasn't very good, but good enough to make the, you know, make the team and and go play. And
1: uh, so so I'm assuming with a with the struggle just to maintain the 2.0, there probably wasn't much discussion or even
0: forethought. in your part of thinking about college. I never thought that. I was like, there's no way I'm barely getting out of high school. So there, there's no way I'm, I'm I, uh, my thought was about, I'm going to join the Marine Corps and I'm going to get out, you know, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to go um, start to, I'm going to learn some kind of a skill set and just go and serve. And I did, and I did have a, you know, a feeling of um, a patriotic sense, even as a young person, love, love my country. And I thought, you know, I want to go serve my country. Like, like my grandfather did. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I want to join and I, I want to serve and, and do something. And I didn't look at college as an, as a really as a, as an option for me because, you know, I wasn't doing well in school. I wanted to, you know, I just want to get out. So <laughs> Give I get that you know, diploma. <laughs> yeah. Get that diploma. And the you know, funny story about that is, you know, I, so I, I joined when I was 17, my mom had to sign the paperwork so I joined in February of 1987 and so I was going to graduate, walk the line in June. Well, I was getting an F in English and, uh, just really because you weren't applying it, it yourself. Just, I wasn't applying myself. I wasn't, you know, I just, it didn't get it. I just, I didn't try, you know, and I was, I ditch school all the time. And, you know, I, I deserved it. I was getting an F because I had earned that F I fully <laughs> deserved that F and you have the meeting with the guidance counselor and um, come to find out that I'm not going to graduate high school. If I get, I'm going to have to go to summer school if I get an F in that class. So me, my mom, my guidance counselor had to go have a meeting with the, um, the English teacher and basically beg her to give me a D and I, and we had to prove to her that I joined the military and if I don't get a D, I can't go in the military. And This, this teacher had every right to to flunk me and I just, and, and I can't remember her name, but I can still see her telling me, it's like, the only reason I'm doing this is because I hope the Marine Corps can straighten you out, you know? and she gave me a D and I shipped off you know and and uh went to boot camp but you know I always I always tell people I thank that English teacher because um you know even delaying for a few months you know your your life just gets put on to a different track and everything would probably be different because right. you know a degree um one way or the other it kind of ch- it changes your path a little bit and timing is very important um with with everything because man it There's so much that could change. Was your mom supportive of you going in the military? She was. Yeah, she was. She knew that I wanted to do it. Um, And so it it was something, I mean, like when I had a letter at age 14, you know, that, (laughs) you know, showing interest. And, um, but my mom worked on a a Navy base. And so she thought that, hey, if you go in, um," and I'm going into the Marine Corps, which is, you know, everyone thinks of it just as infantry. And, you know, my mom was trying to tell me like, you know, look, if you can get some kind of a skill, you know, because if you go and just be in the infantry, well, what are you going to do when you get out of the service? That was her mindset. It's like, you know, Hey, you're going to probably go do four or six years. And then it'd be great if you had some kind of a a trade that you could come out and get a job and and take care of yourself. So um, I ended up going in open contract, which is uh, like the stupidest thing that you can do. And,
1: put me wherever you want
0: me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I couldn't come up with, I mean, you know, there's all these options based on your ASVAB scores and all these different scores. And I couldn't, I, I literally didn't know what to do. And what I did is I literally put my trust into the Marine Corps to say, you guys put me where, you know, I'm going to go because I, I didn't really know what I was doing it's like I knew I wanted to go in the military, but I just don't know anything about how it functions and how it operates and all the different, you know, opportunities. It's just I wasn't that um, wise about that. I didn't have a good mentor. That's another thing, too, is that I didn't have a good mentor to tell me, like, hey, here's some things that you should be thinking about. And here's some opportunities. And if you are kind gonna of go this way or that way, here's some things to watch out for. I didn't really have that. So, you know, I was really at the recruiter's mercy of, like, uh, just a, some dumb 17 year old that like, okay, you know, he's in. And, um, so I went to boot camp actually not knowing what my, my designation was going to be when I graduated and, uh, ended up in a helicopter squadron, um, and met some of my best friends in the world, you know, doing that. And, uh, in a, in a support, uh, element and it was cool, man. The Marine Corps was cool.
1: From an outsider looking in, looking back on it, you had, you had exposure to the military through your mom and, and the jobs she was working and stuff. It almost seems weird that with as much interest as you had, and you knew you wanted to go in that you weren't that kid that was asking a million questions to whoever he came across.
0: Yeah. And I think that I didn't know what to ask. I wasn't sure uh, what I did spend a lot of time on the Navy base. Uh, and I knew that there was these construction schools cause it's a, it's a construction battalion that's there by where we live. And, but I think that I just wanted to go and then there's probably that pressure of graduating high school. There was probably, if I, you know, it's 35 years ago. So, you know, there's, what was exactly going on there um, was I was just a young impressionable young man that didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. But I did know the first step that I wanted to do is I wanted to go in the military. And so it was just like, okay, just get there, you know, good enough on this, this ASVAB score so that you, so that you can go. And then, I don't know, then things are just going to play out as, as, as they go.
1: Did you have at that time aspirations of going longer than one enlistment or did you know it was one and done?
0: Well, I thought, no, I thought like that it could be a career. I really did. I thought it could be a career. So I ended up in a helicopter squadron at Camp Pendleton, not too far from here. Um, uh, HMLA 367, Scarface, which is uh, Huey's and Cobras, and um, in the admin shop. And I went to um, admin school at Camp Delmar, So I went to San Diego for boot camp, do your three months down there, and then um, I went right up the road to Camp Pendleton for school. So I go to the school, and I'm with about probably 300 people out on this parade deck, and, you know, you show up and – I got my job in the military based on where I was standing in the parking lot that day. (laughs) So I'm in the sea of people and you know, the guy, the, the, he was either a staff sergeant or a gunny and he, you know, he gave his little intro of what was going to be happening. And then he like parted the sea and he's like, all right, from you, over, you go with Staff Sergeant so-and-so. Over here, you guys go with Staff Sergeant so-and-so. You are going to go with Staff Sergeant so-and-so. So, based on – there was three jobs in this particular thing. So, based on the group that I happen to be standing with in the parking lot, that's how I got my job for the next three and a half years. And
1: <laughs> It seems to be a, a, a story of your life, you know. <laughs> one person over could have been a completely different career in the military. Exactly,
0: exactly man. <laughs> but that's how it went, man. And then um, – so that's how I get my what my um, job is going to be. Start so we go to school for that, and then I ended up staying at Camp Pendleton. So f- school was only like I don't know, a six, I want to say six weeks. So I graduated boot camp. Oh, here's another funny thing: is that 1987, a movie called Full Metal Jacket came out in 1987, and and I saw it in the movies three weeks before I went to boot camp. <laughs> so you go and watch a movie like that um three weeks before you show up at the place that that's what's gonna that getting ready to happen to you <laughs> it was like okay here we go you know <laughs> um but um yeah so finish um
1: this full metal jacket is basically a documentary yeah
0: yeah And t- today's <laughs> today's Halloween I I graduated boot camp on October 30th 1987 so 35 years and a day from Now And then by December, basically right around Christmas time, I was done with school and now I go to uh, my unit and they say you're going to be stationed at Camp Pendleton. Camp Pendleton is a 50,000 square foot or 50,000 square mile, you know, that has everything. Infantry, tanks, you know, um, LAVs, uh, everything is on there, but you're going to be at Camp Pendleton. That's all you know. So I go to this little shack and give them my packet with my orders, and then, you know, sit there for an hour, and some van picks me up, and uh, and they say I'm going to uh, an air unit. So I, they drive me to the flight line at uh, Camp Pendleton, and you go to the group, which is the headquarters for all these different squadrons, and then now you sit there, and they're thinking about, okay, which where which unit are they going to plug them in with? Okay, uh, Okay, this unit just rotated back from Okinawa, Japan and they had a, somebody that did my job that was going to be getting out within the year. So they they decided they're going to send me to that unit. And then um, Sergeant Ray Garcia comes and picks me up and, uh, and takes me to my new home for the next uh, three and a half years. And Ray and I ended up becoming really close friends. And uh, uh, we both became police officers after, um, after the Marine Corps. But you were asking like, was I, did I plan to stay in? The answer was like, maybe, you know, I looked at it as being a career and that I thought I could do it. And then toward the end of my enlistment, the thing that made me want to get out was that I had a son. So my wife and I, as I told you, we've been together since 11th grade. So I, when I was 18 and she was 19, we got married and which is very young, very early, but we'd been dating for like two years and we just wanted to start our life together. So, you know, we did it. Um, and so, um, two years later, now we have a son. So, um, my son was, uh, about a year and a half old and desert storm came. So, um, we, my, my helicopter squadron went overseas to Saudi Arabia after uh, the Iraqis invaded Kuwait. So we were there three weeks after the invasion. My son was three months old. Um, we left, we were gone for seven months. The, the war happens and then I come home and now my son's 10 months old. And during that, Now this time of where I've got about six to eight months before I get out of the military, I'm think I'm looking at all these people around me that are career people that constantly go overseas and leave their families. Like you can go to Japan or Germany or someplace for a year unaccompanied where you're going by yourself without your family, or you could go someplace for three years and you can bring your family with me. And what I, what I looked at is like a lot of the older guys that were divorced or they're on, you know, they've had multiple wives or they've, you know, they're, I I shared with you that I grew up without a dad. I basically didn't have a good father figure in my life. My grandfather and my, my other, my uncle Carl, who uh, was, is um, my dad's sister's husband, you know, another guy who I really look at as a father figure, both, east, they're 3000 miles away from me. So, you know, We love each other. We have a good relationship, but you know, we're not together every day. I don't have that person that's, you know, around me, helping me every day. I'm living with a single mom and I'm trying to help raise my brothers while my, uh, my mom's at work. So I'm, I looked at these guys that they go overseas all the time and they leave for these big chunks of time. And I thought, you know, I don't want to have, keep leaving my family like that. Like, I don't want my, my son to not have a father. Um, so that was a big driving force for me to want to get out. And so I had some people that were, that were around me in the military that had some police experience. Um, One couple of reserve officers for like Oceanside PD, we had had a guy with broken service where he was in the military. He got out, became a police officer for a few years, came back into the military. And so I had some people like that, that I started talking to about Uh, law enforcement and, and kind of learning a little bit about what it was. And then my real thought was, I told you um, when I joined, I wanted to serve my country and I thought, well, you know, I serve my country, maybe I can go home and serve my community. And so that's, um, you know, all of that combined was, and, and I also thought like, I don't have a great formal education. I've got some life's experience now. I mean, that's what made me marketable. Right. I went from being a 17 year old, you know, kind of immature, very. Imp- I mean, I think you know, I was still impressionable at 21, but very impressionable. Trying to find my way. Now I've had a good grown-up, uh, a, a period of maturity in the Marine Corps. Um, went overseas twice. I did a, a deployment to Japan. I did a deployment to uh, the Persian Gulf for Desert Storm, and and um, I've got some life's experience, and that's what actually helped me make me marketable to become a police officer because I certainly didn't have the education. I was a high school graduate. And if I hadn't gone in the military, there is zero chance that I would have, um, anybody would have looked at me as a police officer, but I came out in 91 and we, it was a victory. We had just had a victory in the Persian Gulf. And so things were very popular and, you know, young, very healthy, you know, good attitude, very disciplined, you know, as a, uh, you know, um, What's not a, to like?
1: <laughs> that that four years that you spent, uh-huh. though, in the Marine Corps, comparing that to probably, I would say, 85 to 90% of the other 21-year-olds who were testing to be police officers, you had garbage loads of life experience, probably, compared to them if they had not been in the military. I mean, yeah. those four years probably were equal to... You know, eight or nine years just going through daily life, right?
0: And I totally agree with that. You know, because I had this mixed bag of people that were in my academy class, and there were some other veterans that were uh, that were in that group. I was had a very small academy class, um, but four hundred people tested, and this is for Simi Valley PD, which is in Ventura County. Four hundred people took the test, and I came out number four, uh, and and was in a group of uh, six people that they hired. And so it's a highly competitive job. I mean, it was, you're going against hundreds of people and somebody might've got a higher written score than me, but then if you can do well, you know, in your, your interview and then all the other factors that they look at uh, when they're hiring you. So, you know, to come out number four in a process like that against people that had bachelor's degrees and, and some of, you know, that were older than me um, that definitely you know put me in that that top echelon of of people that they um that were looking and it just it worked out
1: as a kid growing up was law enforcement ever even a blip on the radar did you ever give it a consideration
0: yeah my my wife says I did i just don't remember cuz i remember being in the back seat of the car a couple times um <laughs> you know um but
1: you were just getting a different I perspective just, i was getting a
0: different perspective <laughs> So I got, I got arrested. I don't know if it's technically. Anybody could ride in the front yeah. seat. Yeah. The back seat of yeah. the
1: important people.
0: Yeah. It was like when I went on my ride along for the first time, I'm like, so this is what it's like to be in the front seat of the car, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I got, uh, when I was, we were in Japan, my, my, my buddy Ray, he basically ordered me to take back when you had floppy disks that you had to put into a computer, um, we, in Japan. Uh, even on the base, you had to have a Japanese driver's license. You know, I had a a California driver, but you had to have a Japanese driver's license to drive even on the base. And those MPs, when they shoot radar, if the speed limit's 20 and you're going 21, they pull you over. You know, if it's 25 and you're going 27, you know, they're sitting, bloop up, got a speeder. You're going two over. So, my buddy tells me, you have to take this disc down to the group sergeant major. And I said, Ray, I don't have a driver's license. I can't go down there. Take, just go. Here's the keys. Go, go. I need you to go get this thing dropped off. Ray, I don't have a driver's license. Like, don't make it. And this goes on for five minutes. And he outranked me, you know. And, uh, and he's like, just go. Go take this. Everything's going to be fine. Go down and drop this thing off. Well, we have this, he's got this old beat up van and the the needle on the speedometer, goes like this, when you're, you know what I mean? It's like, am I going 25? Is it 23? Is it 29? There's things like this. And, I, and I'm I'm driving real slow down the flight line and sure enough, Johnny Law is shooting radar and I was going like one mile over whatever the speed limit was. And he pulls me over and I'm like, oh, great. So I pull into the parking lot at the, at the, the group headquarters and I tell the guy, I give him my ID and I say, look, I have to deliver this to the sergeant major, like his office, right? I, here's the keys. Here's my ID. I, I have to drive, deliver this by, there was a time, like <laughs> I have to get it there by such and such time. So I go and I go up to the office and I can see the car and the MP and I can see he's on the radio because I haven't come back yet and i'm yeah, i go up to the sergeant major's office and the secretary's like i have to drop this thing off and like oh just a minute let me you know he's not here right now we find out where have a seat. and it just yeah and i'm sitting here going <laughs> and i'm looking out the window and the mp's think that i took off they th- they think that i split and um so I I can see more cars showing up on this thing, and I'm up in the second story, you know. Of the I'm in a hangar. It was a helicopter, you know, wing hangar, and I'm to see these guys out there, and I'm just like trying to play cool, wait for. The, and the sergeant major comes in. I give him the stuff, tell him who it's from, and then I walk out the office. And I take two steps, and there's this long stairwell, and and the, this. <laughs> <laughs> and they come up like, hey. I mean, they they hooked me up, they put me in the back of the car, and you know, drove me to whatever their little office was, and uh, you know, to, to scare me. And then who comes to rescue me? My my supervisor, Ray, the sergeant who got me in this situation, the whole thing. Like, you know, well, at least
1: he didn't leave you
0: hanging. At least he showed up. <laughs> yeah, you know? and he's like, yeah, don't worry, guys, I'm going to take care of this guy. Yeah, I appreciate the call. You know, and I'm just looking at him like. <laughs> But I almost didn't get to rotate home because they give you a court date. You got to do this. And my unit's getting ready to rotate you home. But if you have pending legal action, oh, no, you can't leave. So even dude, just a ticket. <laughs> yeah. It was for, well, I guess I got arrested. I think maybe it was, you know, I don't know. They put the handcuffs on me, <laughs> you know. And then anyway, it all went away and I got to go home. But, uh, but anyways. Um,
1: when you were yeah. looking to get out and you, you now kind of, started looking at law enforcement. Was the plan to come back to where you, you grew up or yeah. stay down in San Diego? I mean, did yeah. you look anywhere else or no, just Oxnard? I didn't
0: So I didn't know what to do. Like I didn't have a, really have a mentor again for somebody that was a, a police officer. I um, had some guys that had been in the job and done it a little other ways, but I was kind of parting ways with them. So the idea was I'm going to go home. I'm from Oxnard. So I'll apply to Oxnard PD. And um, so that at the time they were having a hiring freeze and they weren't accepting applications. So, you know, in those days, the way that you learned about jobs was in the Sunday newspaper in the classified (laughs) section. And this one say, you know, we would check it. And then there were four little ads for four departments that were having testing coming up, you know, and there was a phone number that you had to call to register so you could take the test and, um, I called all of them and started setting up things. And one of them was the Simi Valley police department and, um, just pursued that stuck with it. And that was the, the one that the department that ended up, um, giving me a job and, and hiring me. Uh, and I started the, I, I got out of the Marine Corps in August of 91 and three weeks later, September 10th, I'm sorry, September 9th, I was in the police academy. I only had three weeks of downtime because I started applying before I got out of the Marine Corps. That was going to be my yeah. my
1: next question. Yeah, I
0: started, because it's a, you know, a four to six month process to get hired. So I had started, um, you know, at least four months earlier. So I've got the beginnings happening. And then um, I took 60 days terminal leave, which is basically, you know, all your unused vacation time. You can bundle that up in the end is kind of like you're leaving and you're never coming back. They call it terminal leave because you know, you're, you're, you ain't, you're not coming back. So during that terminal leave was just finalizing thing. And then I started working, um, some odd jobs while I was, cause this wasn't a guarantee. I didn't know if it was going to happen. Right. And I'll never forget one of the jobs I did. I called it. It was a temp, a temp service that would just send you out on random, you know, jobs for a couple of days here and there. And one of the places that they sent me was a factory, and it was a shampoo bottle uh, factory. So I'm, I'm a Marine Corps veteran that I'm actually still on active duty. I just got back from the war, and I've been around aircraft and you know um, like all kinds of cool stuff. And my job wasn't as cool as that, but I was in you know you were a part of something. And now I was in a warehouse. Um, getting uh, shampoo bottles that were coming down a conveyor belt with a hair net on with all these little Mexican ladies that um, could do the job 10 times better than I could. And i am just, every moment was going, Oh my God, I can't believe that I, I I'm, I'm doing this right now, you know? And, uh, I did that for a couple of days and I went home on my lunch break and I told my, my wife, I said, would you be mad at me if I didn't go back? (laughs) (laughs) I just quit. I didn't go back uh, because I was like, I literally was wearing a hairnet and you know, you had to get these little clear bottles that, you know, put them in the box the certain way. And I was was like, Oh God, please. So during that transition period where I'm waiting for the job offer that you know, anything could happen. You may not get a job offer, but um things are looking good and but I'm hoping that I get a job offer. But
1: Well, it's also I, not just the job offer, it's the, it's then
0: making it through the academy. Right. Yeah, it's just the beginning, right. But so um I've my backup plan is that I say if I don't get this job, I'm going back in the Marine Corps.
1: So, so you're you're kind of jumping each of my questions before yeah, I ask Yeah, sorry them. about no, that. No, yeah. no, it, it's perfectly fine. I
0: got to do a better job. Of <laughs> <like>. <laughs> so
1: when you came out, for my first question yeah. was, was your wife pressuring you, or if you had decided to stay in, even if you hadn't gone the, mm-hmm. the testing route for law enforcement, would she have supported you I staying in? I think she in? would
0: have supported me staying in, yeah. You know, because it wasn't terrible. Um, I think it was me that... Um, you from know, your what,
1: life experience you didn't want your children yeah. basically with dad 3000 miles away on a regular basis yeah
0: and i also and i miss them like when you know i was i was gone for se- the first deployment i did was 6 months and then the second one um, was 7 months and those are not huge you know periods of time compared to you know what some people do but you know during that second deployment now i'm a father i have this little like my little the, my son was this big when i left um and I missed him and I met, and it's like, I, I wanted, I think I wanted my life to be different. I, I was proud to serve. I wanted to go and, and do my part. Um, and, uh, but I also like long-term was thinking, uh, you know, I, I really would like to not, you know, have to be away from them for, for that and that's, long.
1: And that's something that I've heard repeatedly from multiple guests now is I love, you know, they, they would say, I loved being in the military. Life in the military was, was great. But my family was more important to me, and and many of them, you know, one enlistment two enlistments, regardless, they didn't do a full career because being home for their family was more of a driving force than staying in the military.
0: Yeah, and then you look at it too. It's like, can I am I breaking a cycle of uh, you know? I didn't have a father. My parents were divorced. Actually, my, my mom was divorced twice. You know, by this time, and um, so I don't. I don't say coming from a broken home. I don't think it's not like you know that dramatic. But, um, you know, I thought it was important for that young man to have a father that's in his life and to try and be a a good example for him and provide, you know, something.
1: Was the Marine Corps good about working with you while you're going through that hiring process and everything that you needed to do for those, the testing and all that, or was it pretty much kind of like, Hey, figure out a way to take care of it, but you still have, you know,
0: they were pretty cool. And so I, um, you know, if I needed to take a, a day off, like to go and and because uh, I was down at Pendleton. So, you know, it's it's coming up and uh, may, maybe if I, you know, took a long weekend so I could come up on a, you know, a three or four day, or whatever, take that extra day. And they were supportive and uh, definitely helped. I don't I don't remember any obstacles from them. And then I mean, plus, I, I let it be known that my intentions were to get out, you know, and, and it happened all the time. I mean, there was turnover in the in the units all the time
1: so now you're out you're in law enforcement was there ever a point in that early phase where you actually regretted making the the transition out of the military?
0: when I drove off of Camp Pendleton and um, when I, I, I when I drove off the uh, I think it was the santa onofre santa gate on uh, when I I threw my hands up in the air and I was like, I felt like I did it. Like I finished, I finished my enlistment and I was like, yes, you know, because I was excited that I'm trying to be a, become a police officer. So, um, I was, I was excited to go home. Now the regret comes when you are, when I'm in a factory with a hairnet on going, I, maybe I didn't make the right, maybe I'm not making the right decision. And then what if I don't get this job? Because I'm trying to get a job that is really hard to get. And at the time, I, I I didn't truly appreciate how competitive it was and how hard it was to get to become a firefighter, to become a police officer, um, a deputy sheriff. I didn't truly... I think I was a little bit arrogant. You know, like you have a little, you know, a little vigor in you when you're 21 years old. And, in um, you know, and which which helped me, obviously, because I got the job. But uh, I was... Always, I think, looking at a, a fallback plan, it's like, hey, man, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to the Marine Corps. And I, I was going to try and become either a crew chief because I came, I was in an air unit and I kind of, I like being around the aircraft. So I'm like, I'm going to try and go to crew chief school or go to Intel. That was kind of what my, my, if I if I had to go back in.
1: But it, what I'm getting at is once you were out, you're now a cop. Uh, oh, okay. A year into it, two years, whatever. Was there ever the, a point when you kind of looked back and went, maybe I should have stayed in the, in the Marine Corps?
0: On 9-11. And so I was, had been out for base, basically about 10 years when uh, 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, I felt like a piece of shit because I wasn't in the military and going to go over and, and go fight for our country. That's, that's, that was a time where I really seriously thought about, like, I think I'm going to go uh, join a reserve unit, or maybe I'm trying to go back in the military. And I had this small window of where you know, I had to have a reality check with myself on, you know, my, abil- my abilities and then also my situation. But I seriously, on, I think a lot of us just, there's a bunch of people that I worked with that were prior military that, you know, they, they that was the regret of like, you know, oh
1: my God, man. Was the reserves never a consideration prior to that?
0: I, You know, I thought I, I thought about it, but I don't think I, I just thought that seriously about it. I thought, you know, I'm going to once I had the, the law enforcement job, um, I felt good. And then there was there was times where I thought about going back in the reserves because I started thinking about serving and then potentially a second um, pension, you know, because I had, you know, do your time and then getting medical benefits or getting some um, some base access and commissary privileges and things like that. And I thought about it and it just, I came to the, in the end, it was like the best way I can serve is just serve my community and, and, uh, and, and just go do a good job and try and be a good policeman.
1: And you ultimately did 20, 29, 29 years. And where I want to go now is what you're doing today is we'll loosely call it peer support. Is is that a, a good way of referring to it?
0: Sometimes I do peer support, but I, I work for a treatment center. So I'm I'm a public the, the title is Public Safety Advocate for First Responder Wellness. And what what I do is I advocate for treatment for first responders. So and and you know, that are those that are dealing with post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, addiction, depression, anxiety is working for a place where we can help those people because there's so many people that I worked with throughout the, my career that uh, went out on stress and never came back. Or there was five people throughout my career that, that took their own lives between Simi Valley and Oxnard. Um, and just seeing some people go on like, man, that person was savable. If they could have gotten the help that they needed and, you know, I spent, I had about 15 years of experience as part of our peer support team and our trauma support team. And that, I got a lot of experience through that, which.
1: That was what I was leading to is how did you initiate, cause you got involved in that while you were still active as a police officer. Right. What was the, the impetus to get involved with it?
0: Yeah. So in 2004, Dr. Larry Blum, um, who is a pretty well known psychologist in Southern California, he started a program called tactical decision-making under stress. So at the time I was on the, on the SWAT team and I, I served on Simi Valley SWAT team. And then I served on the Oxnard PD SWAT team and they had put together this instructor co- course, um, tactical decision-making under stress. And what it was is to put officers through scenario based training and then immediately do a debriefing with them. Um, because, you know, it, in the role that you're at, you probably are investigating some officer involved shootings, you know, in the, in the County that, that you work in. And then whatever your experience was, you know, as a police officer before that, many times officers have difficulty recalling what happened or um, their, their statements might not match up to what actually happened. And what we were doing is we were putting officers through these scenarios and then we would interview them. Okay. Tell us what, what happened. And many times, their perception or their their time distortions were way off from what happened, or their reaction time to something because they'd be shoot don't shoot scenarios, and it was really interesting to do that. But the purpose part of the purpose of it was putting them through this like a stress inoculation because the more you prepare somebody to to use force or not use force the better decision that they're going to make and then also will you potentially get a better interview from them when uh, you know if if they have a, a lethal force situation with some uh, understanding some of the dynamics of what happens in a in a real officer involved shooting or if you use deadly force in some kind of an incident so we were doing that and then at the same time, they were starting a trauma support team, which Dr. Blum was leading also, and that evolved into peer support. But what that was is, is teaching a bunch of officers and dispatchers and support people that had experience in critical incidents, that had a good reputation, that were likable, you thought people would talk to Um we're going to give them training on doing critical incident stress debriefings and, and debriefing techniques so that, you know, if you were involved in a uh, some type of a critical incident that we were trained to, we could sit down with you and we could talk through the incident of what happened to give it right to, to number one, to help you, but then also um, to give you an opportunity to talk through what happened um, sometimes before you talk to the major crimes detectives or if it was the the, the psychologist would talk, would try and talk to them before they they had their interviews and that's changed now. They don't, they don't let them talk to the doctors, but that was kind of what it is. And it developed into, and not just shootings, but um, gnarly crime scenes, or a particularly gruesome crime scene or a death of a child. There was things, there was kind of these threshold type things where if you were a patrol officer and um, you were at, having some kind of a reaction potentially at a scene. It could be a child death or it could be a suicide call that some officers that were trained could pull you aside and said and and set up a little meeting with you. And we'd sit in private and have a confidential conversation and let you talk about what happened. And then us having some basic information on how to uh, recognize signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Because, you know, if you, uh, most people, if you get, have a debriefing or talk about what happened to you within about seventy-two hours. It greatly reduces the 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 effects of post-traumatic stress. What happens is that we we see all of this uh, gnarly stuff during our careers, and both on the police and fireside, paramedics, emergency room nurses. That and nobody talks about it, and that stuff builds up, and then it for many people it becomes post-traumatic stress. And post-traumatic stress. You know, uh, it, it shows its head in many, many ways. It could be drinking or lack of sleep or work performance things or just, you know, changes in the person. But if we can do a debriefing with that with uh, the officer or the dispatcher and let them get that off their chest and then also recognize if there's something wrong so that we can make a referral to a doctor or if they need something. And, you know, one quick thing that I'll share with you, like as a simple example, is when I was a field supervisor, we went to a murder-suicide call. Two teenage girls come home from school, and they go upstairs, and mom and dad are dead. The dad shot the mom, and then the dad uh, killed himself. So uh, I lead a team of officers to go in and just clear the house and make sure, because we're not sure exactly what happened, but there's two dead bodies upstairs. We go and clear the house, and um, now I have... Um, our officers that we're gonna we're gonna debrief this with the with the officers because these two girls were hysterical. So can you imagine if you're the patrol officer and you may have been in a situation like this? Your job is to sit with these girls for the next three hours until they talk to detectives or until some family arrives. And you have these this teenager who is hysterical, bawling, crying. You have to sit there and watch that for three hours. And you see this stuff in emergency rooms where a child dies and, and some officer that drew the short straw, you got to stay in the room with the baby until the medical examiner's office gets here or things like that. Those are just a couple of examples. So we had this situation where we had these cops that had to sit with these girls and it was gut wrenching for them. So we said, let's, let's set up a debriefing with the personnel involved in this call. And we talked to the officer who had to sit with the girls, right? And then we talked to the dispatcher that takes the 911 call. That she has a perspective of what happened. And then one of the cops that I cleared the house with, they talk with him. And that officer is totally fine about what he did. But what he starts talking about is that he 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 divulges that you know yeah I'm, I'm this call is not bothering me but. It just took me back to something two years ago where my, my best friend's mom committed suicide. And when I saw this, that's what I'm thinking about. And so what you're doing is you're kind of, you're doing peer support with this cop that it's, that call was a trigger for something that happened two years ago. Right. right. And that's what kind of, what happens is with this stuff, it's not necessarily um, this particular call, it, but it's a, That many times are triggers for other things.
1: You had mentioned previously that you've experienced partner suicide. Had you experienced it at that point in time when you first got involved with it?
0: Yeah, there was, um, when I worked at Simi Valley, right after I left, um, I left in 97 and in, I think it was 98 and 99, they had an officer commit suicide. And one of the the first one was a guy that was my background investigator and, and was part of the, my hiring process. And he had, had got promoted to Sergeant and he, he was my field supervisor for a while. Um, he killed himself in front of about five other police officers. Um, it, it was horrible. And then the uh, second one um, um, in at home in in front of his wife. Um, and then there was a couple of, there was a, uh, um, I would say up until that point when I got on the team, those are the two that stand out to me of like people that I personally knew personally work with that had taken their own lives. But
1: 20 years ago, bringing a program like that to your organization would, would from my experience, I would say that still was still very forward thinking. It, it wasn't the norm and it's got definitely gotten better over time. Yeah. Was it, ex, was it immediately accepted by your organization or was there hesitancy?
0: I think there's always hesitancy. And then it's really about the people. And, and, you know, if I, from, from the perspective of 20 years later, and and a lot more wisdom than I had then is when we started the program, we got a bunch of people that had been involved in critical incidents. I had been involved in an, in uh, an officer involved shooting earlier in my career, and they had some other people that had been in uh, critical incidents. And then they got a couple of dispatchers and then they had a couple of um, very senior non-sworn people, people that had credibility, if you will. But then what you have to do is that you have to build trust with the officers or with the people that you're going to try and talk to because we don't trust anybody. Like, I don't want to tell you my secret and the, and I don't want to show weakness in front of you. And, you know, I don't want, you know, it's very difficult for people to show emotion because we become very numb, we're very good at becoming numb. Is that 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 trauma that's happening over there? That doesn't have anything to do with me. Doesn't have anything to do with my family. And I'm talking about a crime scene. It could be a stabbing or a shooting or an 11-year-old that got you know hit by a car or you know whatever is happening. It's like we try and put a wall up to it to kind of keep that stuff back, but some of that stuff starts to come over the walls. Right. And, and, you know, Dr. Bloom always talked about, like so that stuff starts getting inside the fort. Um, and, and generally
1: when it starts, it, it, it doesn't seep in, it floods in.
0: It can. Yeah. And so what we had to do was just ha- we had a program that didn't exist before and then just slowly start to implement and not give up. And so what we would do is we would have a, uh, let's just use a child death as an example, simple, no, I mean, not simple, but I mean a simple example of a, uh, um, a SIDS death. Uh, we have a, a toddler, or not even a toddler, but an infant that dies, right? Very unpleasant situation. We would have some threshold incidents like that where um, we go, okay, we had these three officers that were on the call, and this is the dispatcher that took the call. We would call Dr. Blum and say, hey, Dr. Blum, this is what happened. And then we want to do a debriefing with those people. And he'd say, and he'd give us the thumbs up to do it. And then what we would do is, is make an appointment with those people to sit down like this and just, you know, we had an introduction and we talked about, and, you know, the purpose of what we're doing is uh, to just reduce the, or extinguish the effects of post-traumatic stress. And you had some people that were totally open to it. And then you had other people that thought it was bullshit or that they didn't want to, you know, do it or, and we tried not to, we didn't force anybody, you know, Um, to do it. But some people, what what happened is that as we continue to do that stuff, you start to normalize it. And that's what the power of what I've learned is about peer support programs is that the more proactive you are, whether you call it wellness or your behavioral science unit or peer support, the more proactive you are, that's what normalizes and makes it okay because if you just do it once a year and there's like five people that get exposed to it, well, okay. Like, But what happens is that these – especially your patrol officers because they're usually the ones that are on the front lines that are dealing with a lot of this stuff. If they get reached out to or talked to a couple of times a year, it just becomes kind of normal like, hey – hey, um, and, and then you're doing briefing trainings and telling people this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it this, and what happens is as you start having some people that say hey man I really appreciate, I'm do I'm good I really appreciate you guys like I'm glad that I'm glad that we're doing this and um, what you start finding is that when you start getting good at it is that I gave you that example of that kid that he wasn't ups- like upset about that murder-suicide particularly, but it took him someplace else. And that's what happens sometimes is that you'll be talking to someone about something and then that's your opportunity to find out that you're going through a divorce, that one of my kids has been sick, that I've been, you know, maybe there's nothing, everything's cool from this call, but they've been on the job for 15 years and there's some stuff bubbling up. I talked to one guy, after um, we, I think it was an officer involved shooting. We had, we had a shooting once with like seven officers shot. The guy was driving a propane. He stole a propane truck, a full propane, <laughs> like a, 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 he's driving a bomb. Right. And
1: not at least what you'd want to shoot at. <laughs> no,
0: at least, at least I think four people, you know, shot at this guy. I, I said seven, that might be high, but we had multiple shoot and a lot of witnessing officers. So that is an incident where we're going to do a debriefing because it was a major, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, officer involved shooting. And, and we're going talking to all these people. And one of the officers who was a witnessing officer, right? He wasn't involved in the shooting. He was in the parking lot when it happened. 20, probably 25 year guy. And he was pissed because it took two days for somebody to call him. He said, just because I didn't pull the trigger, doesn't mean that I wasn't affected by what happened, and and the, you're talking about a person with 25 years on the street. If you could imagine uh, what he's seen in the last 25 years, and you know what's going back through his mind is about the pursuit he was on, where one where an Oxnard police officer was killed, and the scenes were you know uh, other stuff that happened, and he was. And so you find out that, like, there are people that want you to talk to them and they want, they are struggling with something um, or they do appreciate it. And then the last thing I'll say is this this one officer was, he was one of the witnesses to that shooting. He wasn't a shooter. And we're asking him about what happened. And he said, Man, I've been on a lot of suicides lately. I had no idea. He'd been on four suicides in two weeks of people that shot themselves. That's so that was that opportunity to, to talk, there was no outward signs that anything was bothering him. And he's in patrol. Like, Hey man, that's a day in the life of a a patrol officer, right? As you go and you you get the calls that you get, but because we had an opportunity to talk to him, we, we got, you, you take the conversation where it wants to go. Like you and I, like, you know, we said, You know, when we kind of started, this is like, I'm going to let the, we're going to just talk, man. And like, see where the conversation goes. And that's what you do in, in peer support or when you do some debriefings, because let them go where they want to go. And I'm okay with this. Yeah. These guys shooting at the guy in the propane truck. But when he's staring up at the corner and he's seeing all of the crime scenes from the last two weeks, that's what was bothering. That's what was on his mind.
1: Well, and the key word that you said is normalize it it it's it's that constant and and I'll I'll say this again we are getting better as a, a whole in treating our first responders and and normalizing it's okay to go talk to somebody 20 years ago it wasn't normal or your peers didn't look at it as normal of hey I'm going to go talk to somebody mm-hmm. and so you're you're also fighting what normalizing does in my opinion is it starts reducing the stigma from our peers of, Oh, you got to go talk to somebody, you know? And so it's just constantly normalizing it, just making it part of what we do in our daily jobs.
0: Right. And when people get in lethal force incidents, you know, mine was in 1995. So it's more than, that's more than 25 years ago now. But, what you're, what you're required to do is is to check the box and you have to go see this psychologist before you come back to work. And that's really all that's going to be given to you and is all that's expected. And that's kind of like the, what the job is like, Hey, you know, you're the mentality is, is that something like this can happen to you. You need to be prepared. If you have to defend your life or defend somebody else's life, this is going to happen. And then most people didn't actually go, and go to, you know, put themselves in counseling. They would go see the psychologist and check the box that they did that. And then you come back to work a few days later and, and you know, you go to work. And what happens is like, as you this normalizing this to the, the, definitely this, this, this generation of officers and firefighters and paramedics are coming out. They're more open to doing this mm-hmm. than we were. I mean, think about when we were rookies you know, who were the salty dogs, the guys that started in 1971 that were Vietnam veterans. And, um, you know, my sergeants were, were all, you know, that had 20 years on, they started in 1971, 1972, 1974, you know, and that, and so think about smoking
1: cigarettes and drinking black coffee.
0: (laughs) Yeah. In the briefing room, in the car, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, so this evolution of, um, know, where we're at and, and somebody has to be a champion for it. And, um, at my department, um, I definitely know I was a champion for it, um, as, cause I stuck with it. And, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, really cemented that for me is, is and we, we didn't talk about this, but I got, uh, uh, hurt really seriously in 2012 and I broke my back. And I thought I had a career-ending injury. I, I went to—I'm the dumbass that went to Lake Havasu and Copper Canyon and jumped off that rock <laughs> that people jump off of. And um, but when I hit the when I hit the water, my back broke. I just hit the surface of the water the wrong angle, and I got a, um, a compression fracture. And I'm really lucky that I wasn't paralyzed when that happened. Um, and then three weeks later, my wife got diagnosed with cancer. So I have a broken back and my wife has stage three breast cancer. And you talk about feeling like the walls are falling in and collapsing down on in top of you because I was so angry at myself for something that I didn't think, kind of thought was harmless to do. I I, I never thought that I could get seriously injured doing that. And that I now 20 year career might be get flushed down the toilet because I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make it back to work. And what happened though, is that people at my department helped us. And I was a member of our trauma support team. So my colleagues that were members of the trauma support team, they were checking in on me and they were helping. And people donated some money to us because when you're hurt and sick, and all this, one of the things that you actually do need is money because you go broke really quick. And we had people that, that, that helped us financially. And even though I know a lot of the people in the department never thought that I was going to make it back. Cause I probably wouldn't have, would have thought the same thing. Like, Hey, we're, we're going to help, but he's done, man. Like, McGreevy's Magrini, not coming back, dude, this is over. But, you know, and so to, you know, fight through that and, and um, get myself, well enough and strong enough and then actually come back. And I, and I worked, you know, eight, almost nine more years after that happened. And then my wife got better after all of her treatments. And when you come out of something like that, you have gratitude for the people that helped you. And I had a tremendous loyalty that there were so many people to help vacation time. All these people donated because I zeroed out, you know, it was an off duty accident. So I zeroed out my vacation and then now I'm, At a position where I might not get paid. And what happened? My brothers and sisters donated time to me and helped me get through that rest of that time that I needed so that I could come back to work on modified duty. I did that for a few months and then I was cleared to come back full duty, but I couldn't have done that without those people. And that's the thing that really made me loyal to the department and wanting to help and, you know, I had done that a dozen times for other people. And, you know, it's like every time, like if that catastrophic, you know, leave fun, fun came out where so-and-so needs, you know, some time, I always donated time to that always. And, you know, fat, over a period of 20 years, like, Hey, I need I need, I need some help now. And everybody, you know, helped me. And so getting through that, um, you know, it, it put me on another level of, of wanting to help because I can't pay you guys back financially, but I can pay it forward and just try and uh, do what I can to, to be more of a servant.
1: When you first got involved with your organization, did, did you have to go to a specialized training or anything?
0: We did it with Dr. Blum. We're talking about peer and yeah. wellness. Yeah. So Dr. Blum um, put, he, we would do like three and four day trainings of um, learning about stress management, learning about post-traumatic stress, learning about addiction and alcoholism and, and what stress does to the brain and, and the changes that happen. Um, but then it was spending a lot of time learning how to do a debriefing and then learning what to look for. I gave you several examples of where you know, we were talking to somebody and then you find out some information about something and that's, that's your opportunity to, to help that some, maybe they need a resource, maybe they need a referral someplace, or maybe you just need to call them once a week for a month, you know, to check in on them to see how they're doing. Um, but learning about that stuff. So it was all led by, by Dr. Blum. And then as you fast forward now, there's uh post-certified courses, you know, two, two, three day uh, or week long courses that give you the, the basic uh Certification, but that's what we were doing with Dr. Blum was leading everything.
1: When did you cross your bridge as far as seeing that this was something you wanted to do
0: post retirement? I would say, so I retired in 2020 and around 2017, 2018, you know, two years or so before I retired, I started getting nervous about retirement I started getting anxiety of I've done this for my whole life. I was a field supervisor. I was in a, I, uh, a community policing detail, so I did a couple of years as a field sergeant, and then I had a team of officers that I worked with in a in a uh, called the neighborhood policing team, and it was a community policing detail. And I kind of had a target date of approximately when I thought I could go, and I started. I was getting anxiety about, I was getting nervous. I was, I, maybe I was getting scared of like, am I ready? Am I financially ready? Am I emotionally ready? Like, what, what am I gonna do? Like, do I, do I have to get a job? Am I going to be able to do a job? Like what, well, what, what does that look like? What if nobody will hire me? I don't know what, what, uh, what field am I going to go into? And I was, I was like having like physical anxiety. Sometimes I, I knew that I was like really stressed about that.
1: So prior, real quick, prior to that point, had you not been, had you thought about retirement in the sense, were you thinking it was going to be another job or were you thinking it was going to be golf and, you know,
0: I thought it was going to be another job. And I, um, I struggled with a lot of back problems. I did break my back, but before that, 10 years before that, I, I had a ruptured disc in my low back jumping off of a fence in a foot pursuit that, and I was actually struggling with back pain already. So I was actually worried that I was even going to make it to my, through my full career because I was really struggling with low back pain um, because I had permanent damage to my back and it just was getting worse. And um, so I would look at, Hey, what's a fallback? Like what if I don't work my full career and I, I don't get to a medical retirement? My wife and I had started a small business And we did that for five years, like on the side while I was working. And then the recession of 08 came and crushed our, crushed our business. Like it did a lot of uh, businesses. But um, you know, I was looking at is, is there's what's a fallback? Like if, if my back um, just can't make it any any longer. And I, um, and, and so I thought about that and then, as I was getting to that transition part where I was thinking about getting out, what I really started focusing on is what's my next mission going to be? Because I felt like, you know, telling you this stuff about the, the wellness part of it, I liked it. Like, I really liked helping. I started developing a good kind of um, knack for connecting with people, building relationships, um, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And I, and we had a couple, we had a mass casualty incident in Ventura, the borderline. We had an officer get killed in a motorcycle accident. We had another officer the year before that almost got killed in a motorcycle accident, you know, took a header and got a major uh, TBI. And so in addition to all these things that were happening, like on the patrol side or a shooting or, or debriefing people, then you have a major spike that happens with, um, like a mass casualty or a a catastrophic injury to one of your employees. And so I was building a lot of experience of learning how to manage, uh, not to say manage, I was only a sergeant. I wasn't a manager, but you know, my managers would basically get, you know, say, Jeff, you need to go do what you do. Right. And, um, and I started, I felt like I was getting good at that. And so I thought, I don't know what it'll look like, but man, it, w- it would be great if I could maybe get into training or something like that for peer support or getting wellness. What I want to do, I wanted to help continue to help cops. That's kind of what my, 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 my prop mindset was. And I got some really good advice from JP Donnell who works at, uh, at echelon front. He's on Jocko's team. And you know, JP planted this seed in my head about finding your next mission. And for me, I spent 33 years Serving either my country or my community, four years in the military, 29 years as a cop. And it's like, what's your next mission going to be? Because I'm not done. And I think I have a skill set to where I, I can continue to serve and, and help us, help our brothers and sisters. And then once I kind of had that mindset of like, that helped point me in the direction that I wanted to go. Then it was like the road kind of opened up and then opportunities started to, uh, I don't want to say they appeared for me because I developed those relationships and I, and I, and I, but I sought out these organizations that I thought were doing a pretty good job with wellness and, and figured out like, oh man, okay, how can I get on their team or how could I be of service to them? If if it's even possible.
1: So had you known of first responder wellness before you kind of had that light, you know, that epiphany of like, okay, this is where my, my post law enforcement career is going to take me.
0: Yeah. I first started with, um, I learned about first responder wellness in 2018. Um, and I'll get, I'll be very brief cause I want to make, don't want to divulge anything that's, you know, anywhere remotely identifiable to anybody, but we had an officer that was addicted to pain medication. He was an alcoholic. He had a lot of injuries and he, he needed to go to a treatment center. And I had never dealt with that before. And um, quite frankly, in the end, it ended up being kind of a disaster. But I called, I, I, I got into that Rolodex of contacts that I had, and I called some people and I said, hey, here's the situation that I have. And they said, okay, I'm going to connect you with this person. I got connected with somebody. They then connected me with a treatment center that they said they had a first responder program. It was out in Palmdale. So I spent six hours on the phone with with the first responder with the place connecting everything. And I get him to go there and he left within about two to four hours. And he said, this isn't, there's no first responders here. There's a, there's a bunch of junkies here. I'm like, I'm staying here. I don't feel safe. He, he said, this was a first responder program. And uh, he left. And in the aftermath of that, my me and my commander like, we got to solve this problem. Like I, this is going to happen again. And that's how we found, First responder wellness is because we had, we have to find a culturally competent place that takes care of cops and firefighters and dispatchers. And that's what their wheelhouse is. And that's what they're good at. Um, and, and that was, but that's the kind of the journey to get to first responder wellness. Um, but I actually thought I was going to work for the counseling team. Um, you know, Dr. Nancy, I think they are They're based actually down here in San Bernardino, Riverside area. The Counseling Team International—they were doing a lot of training. They were doing peer support training and wellness training, and so I was talking to them about trying to get on their training cadre to you know support wellness training. And I thought that I was going to do that, and then um, I was talking to another sergeant in the sergeant's office, you know, like we do, and we were—he he's getting ready to retire. I'm getting—I'm like, yeah, man, this is what I'm going to do, and he's like listening to me talk. He's like, I need to introduce you to my friend Greg because they're looking for a guy like you for this nonprofit up in Santa Barbara um and that I had no idea was an option so i i worked for a nonprofit for a year and a half before i went to first responder wellness but um yeah i i got uh, linked up with a nonprofit that was paying for counseling services for first responders and their families and it was amazing it was fantastic Um, and then, you know, as time went on, unfortunately it wasn't a good sustainable program, but I did a really good job working for them. And I got the attention of first responder wellness, all about relationships. All of this stuff is about building relationships with people is that I would, I was traveling around the country. I'd be in Minnesota. I'd be in Tennessee. I'd be in Las Vegas. I'd be up and down California. And I would meet people from Minneapolis PD or the fire department or Rochester or Franklin, Tennessee or Nashville, I'm like, Hey, do you know Devin at first responder wellness? If not, you need to know about this treatment center because they take care of first responders. You really want to know about them. And I would be like a link. I wasn't getting anything. I wasn't getting paid. I was just being a resource and I was, I would introduce Devin to all these people I was meeting around the country just to be a, you know, because then he, he would also call me and say, Hey, I want to introduce you to these people, or I think you'd be a good fit for what these guys are trying to do. And, um, about six months ago, you know, he sent me a text one day and he said, uh, Hey man, when are you going to come work with us? And I said, well, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that. Um, and, um, and it was what I wanted. I wanted Devin to call me someday. I was hoping someday maybe there'd be an opportunity cause I, I kind of admired what they were doing. Cause I look at, um, the treatment center or an, an, uh, uh, this company that's helping first responders at a higher level. There's so many people that I worked with that didn't make it to retirement or stuck a gun in their mouth when they could have got, if they could have gotten the treatment, the help that they needed for the post-traumatic stress and for the nightmares and for the, for the, the you know, the drinking and, you know, all the personal problems that they had. Uh, But they, they made this other choice that was just devastating to everyone around them. And the people that went off on stress retirements that like, man, that person was savable. He has a 15 year cop that they go out and they do a good job every day, but the guy was in the military and now he's been a cop for X amount of years. and, And he's like, he's had some calls that are bothering him. And instead of being able to get better and come back to work, they go into the workers comp system and then they never come back because they're not getting to the place where, to get the help that they need. And that's, that's what I love about first responder wellness is that they're helping cops and firefighters and paramedics from all over the country. They're flying here to Southern California to get intensive treatment, to deal with those things that, uh, that are actually normal, the experiences and the feelings that they have. They're not alone. There's thousands of other cops and firefighters just like them that are struggling with these things. And it's just they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go to get help. Where that where they think that nobody can help them.
1: And uh, you hit on it. So first responder wellness is based here in Southern California. Yeah, they're in Newport Beach. Yeah. And the the treatment facility is live-in facility, so they'll bring you in from other parts of the country.
0: Yeah. So it's a it's a residential treatment center for public safety, and it's not a lockdown facility where people are shuffling around in gowns. <laughs> you know, um, it's, but
1: it's only first responders.
0: Only, exclusively. So the only people that we take care of are cops, firefighters, dispatchers, paramedics. We get a couple of emergency room nurses occasionally. Um, we get some FBI, um, border patrol, the, some secret squirrels, you know. And a lot of the federal agents that come in are the ones that are on, um, you know, human trafficking or investigating child sex crimes. You know, after three or four or five years of doing that, it's it's extremely traumatic. And especially if you have a family, like, you know, and that's what kind of happens is that, you know, we start to see things and then, you know, if you have a child a similar age of these horrors that you're seeing over here at work, it really can screw you up. You
1: hit on JP Donnell and, and Jocko's Echelon front. You also got involved with them. How'd you, how were you able to yeah. do that?
0: Yeah. So in 2015, um, I, I saw one of my officers reading this book called extreme ownership. And, um, I always joke about this cause it was the night shift graveyards. And I walk into a storefront and he's sitting in there reading a book. And so as a field supervisor, like my first thought was like, Oh, I'm, I'm so glad that my officer is reading a book right now in the <laughs> middle of the night. And, so, but he's a great guy. He's a hardworking guy. And he's like, and, and he's like, Hey Sarge, what's up, man? I'm just taking a little break. And, um, he says, uh, someone had given him this book and he, and he, um, he tells me about it. He's like, I can't put it down. It was written by these two Navy SEALs, and it's really good. And I was like prime for a good leadership training book. So I saw what it was. I end up on the desk that night as the watch commander, and you know, go online, find the book, immediate purchase, and I read that book, and like instantly, stuff clicked for me about um, uh, ways that I could implement some things that I needed to improve in. And, and also it built on information that it had already. And it was just, it just clicked for me. Um, so I started, uh, following Jocko's. I had never listened to a podcast in my life ever. And I, uh, found out that he had a podcast. So I started listening to the podcast and then, um, I went to the first muster down in San Diego and, um, I, uh, so th- this is a kind of a funny story, but I am the first person to check into a muster at any of. Uh, the echelon fronts, like the, the official musters that they do. My wife and I got down there a little early and Jamie Cochran was setting up the table and JP Donnell, he wasn't working for them yet, but he was there and you know, we we're kind of waiting for them to open up so you can do your, you know, your registration and check in. And Jamie Cochran sets up the thing. And she's like, okay, I guess we're ready. Like, hi, can I help you? <laughs> and I stepped up and I was, so I was the first person that they ever, you know, checked in in person at the event. But, uh, and I think I bought ticket number 19, you know, so I was in the top 20 for buying tickets, <laughs> but I was really excited to go to, I was real, I was looking for a good leadership training because I was finding it was really beneficial. I was applying the principles at work and, and also I was dealing with my own post-traumatic stress at that time in 2015. Um, I, you know, I, I won't go down this rabbit hole, but for two years straight, I'd been having nightmares. I couldn't sleep through the night. I was waking up in a cold sweat and, you know, night terrors. You know, I was the kind of guy that, you know, um, you know, my wife had to throw a couple blocks at night because, you know, you start swinging and thrashing or you hear a noise or you think something's happening. Um, It was, I was, I was having terrible, horrible night terrors and nightmares and I was, I become very hypervigilant and all this stuff that we've been talking about for the last hour or so about shootings and things that happen and violence and couple of my friends got shot and, um, I broke my back. My wife had cancer. My dog died. You know, I had a business that took a crap in 2008. So they were, you know, rebounding from stuff financially from that hit and all this stuff. And I just, all of it, this cumulative trauma, it had caught up to me and I can't point to one specific thing. It was just the whole thing. You know, I don't know what it was, but finally, after 20 years, 22 years, it was like it it, it caught up to me, and I found this book. And you know, part of the, the the stuff the 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 stuff you learn about extreme ownership is about leading yourself, and about you know recognizing where your shortfalls are and what, and taking the steps to, for improvement. And so there was things that I wanted to work on and become a better leader and try and be be a better supervisor. I just wanted to be a good sergeant. And then there was also things of where I could apply this stuff to my personal life and have, and, and get better. And so I really started getting involved in, um, their training and would go to events. And I went to, you know, a few of their events and then, um, you know, I started I had had so much success that I reached out to them and I said, Hey, I just, if you ever need a volunteer, um, I know you put on these, these big events, these musters. I'd been to a couple of them as a paid attendee. And I said, and I know you have some people that help because there's a lot, they have hundreds of people. The last one I was at, had almost 800 people at it. Um, yeah, the first one had 350, which I thought was, wow, man, there's 300 people here. Now they're, you know, pulling in seven to 900 people. But I was said, like, Hey, if, I just want to love to pay it forward. I've got so much from this. And if I, if you ever need a volunteer, let me know, I'll be there. And, and that's what I would do. I would just keep in touch with them. And, um, and one time there was a time where they're like, Hey, you know what? We could use some help and we'd love to have you. Uh, And they gave me a shot to be a volunteer on their muster crew. And now I'm, you know, five, five musters in as a, as a volunteer, but I get to, you know, be a small cog in the in the wheel of helping people have a, a good experience at muster by helping them, you know, get checked in and just help with, with um, getting people set up if they have questions, you know, and then Jocko and Leif and the team, you know, they run the show and then I'm just, you know, kind of in the in the back and the operations people just helping with, uh, there's a group of us of, you know, about 10 people that, that go to all the musters and just help out.
1: Going back and asking an obvious question. So you dealt with your own PTS trauma for two years. Longer than that, actually, but... Yeah. Being somebody who helps others, what was it? And and I know this is an overly obvious question. Why didn't you see it in yourself and why didn't you seek help sooner?
0: I did see it in myself and my own ego was in the way that... Um. I didn't want to deal with it. So I would be, I talk about Dr. Blum a lot. Dr. Blum, I think, look, is is almost a father figure to me as well, because I spent a lot of time around Dr. Blum, and I learned so much from Dr. Blum about what's got me to where I am today. And we would be doing these sitting in training, and Dr. Blum would have a PowerPoint up and be talking about signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress, And you can imagine the bullet points that are there and he'd be going down the list. One of them. And I'm like, I'm sitting there going, I have that. I have that. I'm actually experiencing that right now. I have that. And I have that. I have that. And there was this like, there was this inner kid that wanted to raise his hand and say, the the doctor is right there. One of the experts in Southern California, he's right there. And all I had to do is tell him that I was struggling And I didn't. And what I did is I created years, way more than two years, five to seven or eight years. Cause I'm talking about, you know, knowing in probably 2011, 2000, you know, yeah, 2010, 2011 um, of experiencing these things already. I knew that it was there. And my, my ego was that it'll go away. And I was self-medicating at times with alcohol. Like when I broke my back, most painful thing I've ever been through in my life. And you get on prescription medication and you know, you have a problem when you're taking your pain medication with, with wild Turkey and, and ginger ale, you know, mix. like you're drinking alcohol with taking this pain medication. Cause you built up a tolerance to it. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, I, I don't have an addictive personality because I, I, I don't, I don't think I could say I was ever addicted to medication. I took it as long as I needed to take it until I didn't take it anymore, but I probably took more than I should have. And I was, and I was pouring alcohol on top of it. And I had these, you know, inner demons of, uh, you know, inside. And I, I was afraid to open up Pandora's box. I had all of this stuff that was stuffed down and I'd held it down for, 22 years. And I knew that if I went and started talking about it, that it was just going to, it was just going to, it was going to blow up. And I didn't, I I didn't want to do that. And, but I knew that I needed to. And, um, I was the peer support coordinator. You got to understand, I, you know, I have all this training and experience. And in 2015, I'd been a Sergeant for like a year, a year and a half. So I'm now the peer support coordinator. And what made me, if you don't mind, just jump into like how I, what I did to get my help is that I'd been struggling. I'd been having nightmares literally every night. I was afraid, like I would lay in bed and I wouldn't go to sleep because it was like, I'd start falling asleep and I, I would wake up. It was like, I was afraid almost to go to sleep because I knew when I fell asleep, I was going to have a nightmare. And so you end up just like awake. And then, you know, your sleep deprivation and all the stuff that builds on day after day after day. But I was like, I didn't want to go to sleep because I was going to have a nightmare. And I was in Uh, I became the CIT coordinator, the crisis intervention training coordinator, and the peer support coordinator. So now I'm just dealing with mental health all the time. So I'm in the CIT academy, um, and um, there was a a therapist that was talking. She had a veteran, and the the topic was veterans and PTSD. There was this one-hour segment during this 40-hour training and I knew her. I talked to her before. I knew who she was. I, I knew she was legit because I I knew her for a couple of years. And um, they were talking and I'm sitting there in the class and I'm I'm I know that I'm in the throes of post traumatic stress. And she wrote her name and phone number up on the gre- on the board, on the whiteboard, and it's that same thing of how many times have instructors that you've been there, if anybody wants to reach out to me, here's my information. And nobody calls. Or, you know, maybe somebody takes a picture, but it never goes anywhere. And I made the decision right there that I'm going to call her. Um, I'm going to call her. And that's what I did. And I said, uh, her name is Kim. And I called her and she knew me. We Like I said, we knew each other for a couple of years loosely just from working around each other. And I told her, here's what's going on. And, um, you know, if you could you connect me with someone that you think that would be good? Because I didn't want to call Dr. Blum because um, then it's connected to work. I wanted to talk to somebody that was away from. I had this weird thing too of, like, I almost thought of Larry more as my friend than our doctor. But all it was was an excuse, because when I talked to Larry about this stuff, Larry's like very blunt. I don't know if you ever met Doctor Blum. He's a he's a he's a character. He used to be a powerlifter, and as we're sitting here in your gym, um, but <laughs> this is a studio. We're in a studio. We're in a studio. <laughs> um, but Larry would be like that's the stupidest fucking thing i've ever heard jeff you know because he's like why don't you talk to me you know and uh but that was taking those first steps to make that phone call right and then what happens we all we come up with excuses not to call or not to show up to the appointment because when i went to my when i started going to the therapy what was happening is that i would just start crying and i didn't know why And I would go and I would go and sit with this, this, uh, this doctor, her name is Nahed. wonderful woman. And I would just like start talking about stuff and it would just like, like a baby. And I didn't understand why it would happen. It was like, I mean, if I, I always tell people like, you remember the scene in that movie with called analyze this when Robert De Niro, he's talking about when I see puppies play, I start to, you know, it makes me great. It's like that joke about that, about like little sensitive things or emotional things. Like I would get way more emotional than I should get about something. And it was like all of this stress and trauma that I had been exposed to for a long, long time, it just totally boiled over. And I couldn't stop it from boiling over anymore. And I had to go offload that. And what I did is, is I took my own medicine and I started seeing this therapist, and I would go once a week. And you know, we just start talking about some things that had happened. And I'd go through, and I'd talk to her about this is what happened when my friend got shot, and I rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital. And this is what happened on this. And then I'd talk about you know about my uh, about the shooting that I was in 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 '95. And it, like those one particular things, it's not like one thing. It was just all of this stuff. And then, like I said, I, you know, this catastrophic injury, I was in pain all the time. My wife had gone through this horrible cancer ordeal. And then I, we had some financial challenges. We were trying to, you know, and I, and I I said, my dog died. Like when my dog died, I, I, like, I was so distraught about when we had to put down our, our Labrador, you know, but it's just, it's just because you're on overload. Like it's just, it's full. And, um, there's a, uh, Clark Paris, um, who used to be a Vegas Metro cop. He had this thing in an the analogy called it cop stew of this, all the buildup of that pot. And it goes down a little, it bubbles. And then that's just the pot. just <coughs> overflow with people say your water glass getting too full, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. It's like, that's what happened. And Dr. Blum talked about it. We have walls around us this, and we you were inside the fort and stuff starts getting inside the fort you know, and you can't keep it from coming in. And so all of those things put together, that's what was happening to me. And, um,
1: the word that sticks out with me. And I, I think that it's our biggest detriment is our ego. Yeah. We can, we, we all see what our flaws are. When we look in the mirror, we see our flaws and we know what we need help with. Mm -hmm. It's our ego that prevents us from asking for that help. And the the worst part about it is when for many of us, when we finally do get to that point of asking for help, I don't want to say it's too late, but it could be a whole lot better if we did just get, just yeah. push that ego to the, and I know it's easier said than done. Yes. Push that ego to the side and just admit, Hey, I need to talk to somebody.
0: Right. And that's the whole thing is like, it's so much. And that's why I understand when a cop or firefighter is resistant to getting help because they just don't know what they don't know, and and for me, I mean, with all of the information that I had, because I I I feel like I had more information than the average bear about wellness and post traumatic stress and all that stuff, and about what you know what to do, and I still was resistant to getting help. And then there was you know the ego part of your reputation, right? You know, I didn't want people at work to know. I didn't want, I was a supervisor. I didn't want my subordinates to know or to think. And then, you know, it's funny when I, I talked to my family about this, like, oh yeah, we knew you had <laughs> PTS for years. And I, cause I think I'm doing such a good job of hiding it. Right. And. My, you want to know your
1: flaws? Just ask your family. Because trust kids, me, you, the, you ain't hiding it from them. Yeah,
0: just ask your wife and your kids. And they had this thing of where like they would come over and they would to my wife, they'd be like, hey, is today's dad like, <laughs> like this, you know, because they knew and I was trying to act like, you know, they didn't know and I was hiding it or I would tell them, but they, they knew they absolutely they didn't know exactly what was wrong, but they knew some stuff was wrong. And, um, so it's like getting over yourself and like, you know, and then I could have saved myself years. Like you said, years of, of internal turmoil. Um, and just, uh, if you you get every cop or firefighter worth their salt is going to have PTSD multiple times throughout their career and some manage it better than others. And so, just, you know, accepting the fact that, okay, it's normal for me to have. So it doesn't mean that you can't sleep. It doesn't mean that you can't go to work. I showed up to work every day. Yeah, I didn't call in sick. I wasn't like not showing up to work, but there was things behind the scenes that were really troublesome to me. And I was, and I wasn't feeling well. Um, and, uh, but to, to have, to realize that it's normal, what you're experiencing, and it's also fixable because I'm going to have post-traumatic stress for the rest of my life. And then you could also use like to label yourself. <laughs> like if you have your pity party and go like, it's almost like if, if somebody gave you a, you know, a, a bad medical diagnosis that you just could use that as some excuse for something. And once you stop that and go, no, fine. that does not post-traumatic stress does not define me. You know, I, I'll, Larry talks about it. Take all that pain and wear it as a badge of honor. All of that, trauma that you got right. Wear it with pride because you, you earned it, right. You know, you earned it doing this job and that it's normal and it's, it's, it's manageable and it's fixable. And that's what, you know, if anybody gets anything out of this is that whatever it is that you're going through, there's a thousand other cops out there just like you and switch the patches off your uniforms with the calls and the things that they saw the job is the job. It doesn't matter where you are in this country. The job is the job. And we're all seeing the same stuff.
1: And at the end of the day, we're all just human beings. None none of us has a superpower that makes us better than the next one. We all put on a uniform. We all do stuff. And we all see horrible stuff. You know, And like you said, some may deal with it better. But ultimately, all of us are suffering from it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so set yourself up to be successful lead yourself stuff. What have I learned from Jocko and Leif and JP and Dave Burke is that you have to lead yourself. If you want to be a good leader, first you have to lead yourself, identify, say, look in the mirror and there's things that you know that you have to work on, work on those things and work on your family and, and work on being a professional and your life will get exponentially better. You know, my, mine did. And then you know, when, when it comes your time, you know, to move on from the military or from the first responder, you know, life is think about what it is that's important to you. And a couple of things that were important to me is I wanted to continue to help cops and I wanted to continue to grow as a leader. And I'm getting to do, you know, both of those things. I get to help in a small way, support the mission of what Echelon's Front is doing, is doing at their musters and and have, help people have a positive experience at that training. And then every day I, I help cops and firefighters and their families, um, you know, with, with all this stuff that we've been talking about. You know, that's so that's what I feel good about. Man. You
1: gave some, some great advice. And one thing I just want to hit on, though, if there's somebody out there maybe they haven't, their agency hasn't adopted a peer support type program. So they haven't received any of the initial training. If they're interested in going down that Avenue though, of getting into officer wellness and, and helping other officers, what training or books would you recommend?
0: Yeah. So I would recommend, um, how cops live and why they die, which is, uh, written by Larry Blum, uh, Dr. Lawrence Blum to be, but, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a great book. Um, and as far as getting training, you know, definitely on the West coast in California, the counseling team international got all kinds. I mean, you don't need to recreate this. There's, there's a lot of, post-certified training for behavioral health for basic and advanced peer support and wellness and resiliency and critical incident stress debriefing, and then shift wellness. Uh, it's another consulting firm that I work for. Um, so we, first responder wellness is the treatment center. And that's where we're, we're, we're actually bringing in the first responders uh, for you a know, sh- uh, short period of time to help them deal with what there is because we want to get them back home so they can continue to serve if that's what they, what they want to do. Counseling team, Um, it's got training dialed in. Um, you know, my favorite book is extreme ownership, you know, uh, how U S Navy SEALs lead and win. And then, um, so it's funny, the guy that me, the guy that failed English class, I helped name a book. And so, um, Michael Sugru and Dr. Shauna Springer, uh, wrote a book called relentless courage. And the second part the tagline, um, I came up with, and it's winning the battle against frontline trauma. So, you know, check that one out. But uh, yeah, I I laugh about that one. I got my name in a, I got, you know, one little thing. Jeff McGreevy's name is in a book, but, you know, it was an honor to help uh, name that book. you just, you know, throwing back ideas and came up with that tagline because Dr. Blum always talked about achieving victory. And how can and it's, it's winning the fight on the street, winning the gun battle, but then also winning the emotional battle. And it's like, what can you do to set yourself up to be victorious? And victorious is a lot of different things. How do you be victorious with your family? How do you be victorious by having a good marriage or raising good kids or having, you know, a solid career is you have to, you have to take those steps and, and make, and better yourself and surround yourself with good people your relationships are paramount. So develop those relationships with your network. Um, so that when you're done with your career, um, you've got some people that you can, you can go to, to get guidance and, uh, you know, doors will open up for you if you have the right relationships. that's for sure. It's not going to just come to you.
1: You already kind of jokingly referred to this a person putting their name on the board, but if somebody does have questions and Wants more information or just wants to talk to you about wellness. Sure. How do they get in touch with you?
0: LinkedIn would be the best way. So, Jeff McGreevy, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my Facebook is is, uh, is also just my name. And then my, my Instagram, I just kind of keep that private um, for a closer network. But I'd love to ne- interact and, and talk to people. I get uh, um, several people that reach out you know, via LinkedIn. They kind of see what we do. And I'm always lo- looking to talk to people who are in a similar space. And then, you know, if you're. A first responder that needs some help with something and you just need somebody to talk to you to maybe help try and point you in the right direction, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I
1: appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, brother. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, TransitionDrillPodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.